0: We all know how those regular dudes from Kansas are. Okay. <laughs> I don't think we have Kansas I
1: listeners I don't know yet. anyone. I don't think I, I don't know also, anyone from Kansas. I also
0: don't know what I meant by that. I'm so. <laughs> <laughs> gonna run away as far as I can from the I'm gonna hide and you won't see me again.
1: Hi, and welcome to Half What History. I'm Jonathan.
0: And I'm Kylie.
1: And this is a show about the upcoming week, but a long time ago.
0: Uh, Sometimes a long time ago? I don't know. We're in the 1900s, right? I'm in the 2000s, dude. Oh, I forgot about that.
1: (laughs) Yes. Also, surprise, I'm not Jonathan, I'm Kylie.
0: Oh, I was really hoping I was Kylie.
1: I know you get to wear the pretty ring if you're Kylie. Uh I don't think it's going to fit your fingers, though.
0: Mm, Maybe I could (laughs) wear the pretty ring if I was Jonathan, if someone was nice.
1: Hey! (laughs) Anyway, it's really late, and it was supposed to be the Halloween week.
0: <laughs> so, that was your trick. Ha ha ha.
1: And this is our treat, I guess. The episode. yes. Treat For you. <laughs> well,
0: our treat is you'll be getting two episodes this week. Yes, so. that is
1: true. That's true. Although, you were depraved. Deprived.
0: Not depraved. Yeah, you're all depraved <laughs> listeners. You hear that? Depraved.
1: <laughs> you were deprived last week because... <clears throat> my voice decided it didn't want to exist anymore for about four days. And then I was sick. And I'm still sick. So if anyone hears me coughing in the background, it's because I jumped up and ran away so not to, like, murder the microphone.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so
1: I think you're first because I'm, like, almost I'm almost pushing that decade
0: rule. Yeah. Just a little
1: bit. <clears throat> That's fine. It's
0: fine. That's what the rule's there for. So a little housekeeping before we start, just wanted to give a shout out to WTPC85 for leaving us a review after listening to our episode 14, where we talked about choose your own adventure books and played War with the Evil Power Master. (laughs) Uh, WTPC is also a host, one of the hosts of Wicked Thoughts podcasts, so make sure to drop by and give them a listen as well, obviously after binging us.
1: (laughs) Yes, please. Also, I like like the name of their podcast, it's surprisingly appropriate.
0: Yes. <laughs> well, also on the topic of uh, people reviewing, I guess this would be a good time to also plug that you guys should ha- hop on Apple Podcasts or any other podcatcher that you have that allows you to do reviews. Yeah. And give us reviews. That would be great. Maybe Thanks. Maybe saying this at the beginning will get us some more reviews. Oh yeah, maybe.
1: <laughs> yeah, if, uh, if uh, you want to just like shoot us a, a little bit of good Good job, guys. That'd be great.
0: Yeah, it really helps with getting new listeners, and I mean, you'll get a shout out as well. Yeah. Um, also, speaking of listeners, oh yeah. Uh, as of recording this, we have <laughs> one thousand listens to our podcast.
1: Woohoo! Good job.
0: So thanks, everybody.
1: Yeah. Um, I also have a um, bit of upkeep upkeep um, as well. So last week, not last week, the week before, I misspoke. Um, Albert Anastagia's. Um, alleged son's name, it's Jack O'Halloran, not James. Ah. Does that name ring any bells? No. No? Okay. <laughs> um, so, he was non in Superman 1 and 2, the mute member of the Kryptonian supervillain trio that were banished to the Phantom Zone. Oh. Yeah. And he also released a book in 2010 about his life, um, where he talks about his relationship with Anastasia. And... For our reference, the Gambino crime family was mostly active in from 1957 um, through 1992 when the family's underboss decided to cooperate with the FBI, but is still mildly active today. And as far as I can tell, um, the most recent cu- crime boss was murdered outside his home in Staten Island in March of 2015. Oh, boy. So they're still kicking, just not as aggressively, I guess. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. Now on to our last spooky-themed topic of October for me. Spooky. Womp womp womp. So my story starts in the small town of Tong, South Africa in 1924. Tong had quarries for mining limestone, and limestone was a valuable resource since it would generate a lot of revenue from creating cement. It was also used in the process of refining steel and in agriculture as a component of fertilizer and fungicide. Why did you gasp?
1: Because I thought I knew what you did, and then I realized that I think it was one of the things I looked at for next week, so I think my gasp was inaccurate. (laughs) And
0: continuing. So limestone in this area was also surrounded by soft sandstone, so dynamite blasting was how they regularly cleared out the sandstone before mining the limestone. Um, During this process, miners would notice that there were frequently pocketed areas in the stone that contained large amounts of animal skulls and fossils. Ooh. Yeah. So I looked into it, and the reason that so many remains are found in these pockets is because uh, of specifically a limestone formation that they call tufa. It's very inconsistent in the way that it generates, and it makes it an ideal but precarious place for animals to seek shelter.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Yep. (laughs) Oops. Oops. So miners would often keep these fossilized skulls and bring them back to their quarry offices where they would store them in boxes or particularly complete skulls. They would display them as ornaments or in this specific case, a paperweight. Oh, fun. Yep. So I've,
1: I've always wanted a skull-shaped paperweight.
0: Oh, <laughs> well, this is a, a stone used-to-be-skull paperweight.
1: Oh, yeah. Good point. <laughs>
0: yep. At one point was skull.
1: Sometime. A long time ago.
0: (laughs) So, on October 28th of 1924, a man named De De Bruin mined out their latest collection of skulls and brought them back to Buxton Lime Works offices. Not too long later, the visiting director of the Northern Lime Company, Mr. Izod, stopped by and was examining some of the collection. It consisted mostly of baboon skulls, but he took interest in our specific paperweight skull. Oh, he ended up giving the skull to his son, who placed it on his mantle at home. Okay. Yep. So our paperweight is uh, traveling.
1: All right. It's it's traveling and it's being displayed in someone's home yep. on their mantle.
0: It's a fossil. You would do that.
1: Yes. I are they my old roommate Mary, <laughs> perchance?
0: <laughs> Your old roommate Mary. Had real fo- had real skulls, not fossils. Yes.
1: that's why I'm wondering. <laughs> yep. Maybe it was a progression. Maybe she inherited it from an ancestor.
0: <clears throat> I hope her ancestor wasn't a cow.
1: No, I mean, like, <laughs> the the inclination to display the skulls. Okay, okay. <sighs> I hope Mary doesn't listen.
0: <laughs> <laughs> a friend of Izod's named Josephie Salmons was visiting one day, and the skull also immediately caught her attention. Josephine was a student of anatomy at the University of Witwatersrand, and immediately recognized that there was something special about our paperweight. She contacted the quarry and had them ship out a bunch of the artifacts that they found by from the miner, Mr. De Bruin, including that skull, to her mentor and professor Raymond Dart, an Australian anatomist. Hmm. Dart examined the box that his, by the way, first ever female student had sent him. Oh, good job, girl. Yep yay it, and also came to the conclusion that one of the fossils was special hmm so in that one fossil was the paper our paperweight <laughs> so a bunch of people had their like eyes fixed on this paperweight
1: <laughs> okay so paperweight is grabbing people's attention
0: yep so the skull he picked up was small and mostly com- had a mostly complete face with many of its teeth still intact the face was relatively flat and had some gashes, along with some missing pieces or punctures inside the eye sockets. Huh. But m- the most impressive part of this fossil was that it had a natural endocast of the creature's brain. Oh. Yep. To help you imagine what this looked like, picture that you're wearing a face mask of a skull, and your mask ends just before your ears and where your scalp would start. Now, after this, the skull falls away, and your mask is has nearly all of the brain exposed. So Ooh. it's like a full skull still. So you have like all of the full shape of the right. head, but yeah. the back half of your head is it's just brain. brain rather than skull.
1: Ooh. And it's a fossil. <laughs> it's kind of gross. Yeah, so, so it's a
0: casting. <laughs> what Dart was able to gather from this mold of the fossilized brain, which is extremely rare, by the way, was that the folds in brain structure were more complex than the average ape in the region. Hmm. So I mentioned, actually, did I? I don't think I mentioned this yet, but it, it was mostly like baboon skulls.
1: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this brain didn't look like a baboon skull.
1: Tricky.
0: Yes. So because so much of the brain was cast, it was also able to be determined that the spine was likely positioned directly under the skull, something that no other apes have. Yeah, because
1: they're usually like back more, right? Like right. up on the back of the. Because they're like. They're hunched. Hunched, yeah. yeah. So, Ooh, my anthropology classes are <laughs> paying off. <laughs>
0: there you go. So this, as you just guessed, is indicative of a normally upright and bipedal being. yeah, of which there's not many.
1: <laughs> no. <laughs> there are not.
0: Yep. So just forty days after Dart examined this find, he pl- published a paper in February of 1925 um, in the journal called Nature, where he called it the Southern Ape of Africa. The intermediary between living anthropoid and man, the Australopithecus africanus.
1: Oh, okay. Yep. Yes.
0: <laughs> so it's one of the first discovered potential ancestors of humans. Yeah. Yep.
1: It's pretty interesting.
0: Yeah. So the Tongue Child, as it would eventually be called, um, because it was young mm-hmm. and ate from Tongue. Yeah. Yep. Would shake our current understanding of human and ancestry and evolution. At the time, we believe that all humans came from Asia because of the Java Man discovered in 1891. Java Man was classified as uh, part of the Homo erectus and dated 1.8 million years ago. The Tong Child was dated 2.8 million years old and had many features resembling both ape and man and was in Africa.
1: Yeah. So
0: very far away from where they thought the origin (laughs) of humans was. Yeah. As you can imagine, this led to some controversy, since no one back then seemed to like the idea that man was anything other than a man. Yep. So. E- oh, yeah. Even sign, a lot of scientists of the time Iffy. were still very religious. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I mean, a lot of scientists now are still very religious. Yeah. But a lot of scientists now are religious to the point where they kind of want to just learn about the past. But back then, they were like, no, man was this man, is, created right. by mm-hmm.
1: God. Cannot This cannot exist. Yep. Yeah.
0: So it was immediately discounted, especially because this fossil was supposedly disproving that. Mm-hmm. Many critics immediately dismissed it as just another young ape. Young apes te- tend to ha- not have developed or pronounced brows or jaw lines like you normally see in grown apes. A young ape could look strikingly like an average human to an average observer. So that was kind of... Oh, they are kind of digging at the at Dart as well because they were like he doesn't really know what he's talking about. Right. Also, there was the matter of the brain being small, not just because it was a child, but the brain was comparatively small. Um, So the critics further leaned on the ape conclusion since gorillas or chimpanzee brains are generally smaller than human brains at stages of life. Mm -hmm. So because of this, a And there was also a recent hoax about a similar find in human evolution. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Tong child was almost universally rejected by paleoanthropological community. Whoops. Yep. (coughs) However, there was someone who immediately believed in Dart's findings and continued to seek out on it. Mm -hmm. This was a Scottish doctor named Robert Broom, who was working in South Africa at the time, and heard about the discovery just two weeks after Dart published his journal. Soon after, he traveled to the same site in Tong to find more specimen for himself the exact hong quarry where the tong child was found was like completely obliterated even just like a few weeks after because they were mining for limestone and they right, didn't yeah, care so, so
1: so the area where it was found was gone
0: yeah So it was just a lot of, he he did a lot of searching. He would eventually stop being a doctor and become a paleontologist in 1933 due to the amount of searching he in paleontology he was already doing. (laughs) So he leaned right into that. Fair enough. (laughs) And he ended up finding a lot of examples of Australopithecus. And I should mention that Dr. Broom was 67 years old when he did this.
1: You go, dude. Good yeah. job. <laughs> so
0: just remember, everyone out there, you you too can do something regardless of your age.
1: My dad is 65, and I cannot imagine him traipsing through Africa, digging up bones. But he could. I, I'm not sure with his knee he could, but <laughs> he could try. <laughs>
0: he just got it replaced.
1: <clears throat> True, but now the other one needs to be replaced, so... Um. Mm. Yes. <laughs>
0: So, Dr. Broom's findings showed the Australopithecus in many stages of its life, and in his research, which he later published in 1946, he would convince one of Dart's strongest critics, Sir Arthur <laughs> Keith, that he was, in fact, wrong. A year later, Sir Keith ended up writing to Nature and stated that his earlier preconceptions of an aged tong child resembling more closely an ape were proven wrong by Dr. Broom, as the specimen did indeed resemble the human form.
1: Yeah, and I mean, like... It would make sense that considering the Tongue Child was, like, two and a half million years old. Is that right? know. 2.8. Estimated. Right. So, like, even the difference between that and the um, Java. Per, which was 1.8. Which 8. was 1.8. Yeah, so like a million that, years later. A million years later, and then comparing that to now, like, I, I feel like in a way it would take a lot of assumption to assume that nothing in the, like human ancestral physiolo- physiology would have changed, like, you, I feel like you would have to have assumed that there would have been significant changes.
0: Yeah, I mean, their their major thing was that it looked too similar to an ape and they yeah. were just stuck on, like, there has to be humans. Right. Which Java Man was very obviously human. human more
1: human-like than this, right? right? Even, yeah. even though
0: it was still, like, very... It, definitely more feral-like mm-hmm. and, like, you know, had bigger facial structure yeah. and all that stuff. It was still very obviously human, human. where this yeah. was so much of a mix between ape and man that everyone tend to just lean to it's, th- just, an it's ape. just an ape. Yeah, yeah. Ignoring the brain structure, which is, right, like, the coolest yeah. <laughs> part of this find. <laughs> um, something... That's,
1: like, that's
0: super impressive. Yeah, this actually also helped them find out that around, around that time, they believed that human evo- or human evolution of the brain started from the back of the brain and made its way towards the front of the brain mm-hmm. as the brain developed. And because we got such a clear picture of this one's brain at, as a child... And at this time, yeah. Yeah, and at this time and we can compare it to what our brain looks like now or other brains that we've found mm-hmm. between then, um, it's very obvious that the different sections of the brain definitely changed at the same time as other sections. Yeah,
1: so like it's all developing together instead right. of, like, piece by piece.
0: Yeah, I think they called it, like, the mosaic model or something mm-hmm. like that. And Sounds right. it was disproven. Mosaic model's not true. Yeah, yeah. Yep.
1: Because it's not, you're not putting piece by piece down, or, yeah. like, it's not growing piece by piece. It's kind of, like, all, it's more like, like a plant or something where it all kind of grows up together.
0: Yeah. So, that's the story of how, as another paleontologist, William King Gregory, put it, the missing link was no longer missing. <laughs> Uh, One last update on the Tong Child specifically. In 2006, it was discovered that the scratches and punctures on its face and eye sockets that I mentioned earlier belonged to a large species of eagle. Oh. Yep. Oh. So this opened up the idea that birds (laughs) of prey were likely a great threat to our ancestors, which was also a new discovery.
1: Yeah. I mean, it would... I guess it would make sense that, like, especially for, like, a child. Did it have an estimate about how old the Tong child was when it died?
0: Um, Originally, it was thought that the Tong child was, like, nine years old. Mm -hmm. um, And that was using estimates that um, it was, in fact, a human. And then they kind of revisited it when they were trying to to declassify it as human and make sure that it was an ape. Mm -hmm. And they said that an ape that was... Two to three years old was approximately the same developmental stage as a nine year old human. Okay. And then they eventually went back and figured out that the Tong child is likely three to four years old because of that intermediate transitionary gap between ape and human.
1: That would make sense. And I mean, like, even human children at like three to four, and like, not to mention like more closely related to ape, would have been like fairly small. Yeah. and,
0: and I, they're, they're smaller than apes at that point as well.
1: Right, yeah, and I, I feel like considering the fact that, like, the flying dinosaurs of the time would have been, like, huge—not, like, of the time, but, like, before—would have been huge, it's not that far-fetched, I think, to assume that, like, birds of prey might have been significantly larger then than they were now— just based on, like, what would have been required of them to get what they needed, like, hunting-wise. Yeah. Like, they might have been tackling larger prey than birds do now. Yeah, I mean, it was so, also like,
0: assumed that that eagle was, l- like, whatever species of eagle that was, was larger than what yeah. we consider a modern eagle. Yeah.
1: So, like, I just had this awful vision of an, a giant eagle swooping down, and I'm thinking of the eagle from The Rescuers Down Under. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just envisioning it swooping down and picking up, like, a four-year-old child and just by the face and... I
0: mean, that still happens today. Like, eagles and hawks just picking up, like, dogs.
1: Yeah, I mean, in the proposal, Sandra Bullock's running around with a dog because the eagle took her phone because she saved the dog. And she's like, no, take the dog. (laughs) (laughs) Which is horrible. Don't do that. Mm. Do not offer your dog
0: Anyways, that's the, that's the story of when we discovered Australopithecus. All right. There's also a Bare Naked Lady song that has yes, Australopithecus there is. Yep. in it. The history of everything.
1: Yeah. I actually really enjoy that song. It's a good song. Yeah. All right. Oh, no, 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 no.
0: Kylie just spilled water all over her notes.
1: And my phone. I'm more worried about my phone.
0: I'm worried about the notes. we got to finish recording.
1: All right. Just to kinda of like lay them out in lines so that I can, like, yeah, pretty much so that they're not completely wet.
0: Oops. In classic Kylie fashion, we have one, two, three, four, five, six pages of notes.
1: They're all in really big font, though. All right, so, in honor of Halloween, I'm going to talk about a witch. Uh
0: huh.
1: Hee <laughs> hee hee. Well, a fictional witch. Uh huh. Actually, there's two of them. Uh huh. <laughs> Um, on October 30th, 2003, with it past our ten-year deadline, I will say, well past. Yes, enough passed.
0: I don't know why I feel like you have to justify this. I, I don't. It's know. our show. We could do something. That's last true. Year I if could do whatever really I want.
1: All right. So, October 30th, 2003, Wicked the musical premiered on Broadway. Whoop, whoop. Woo! Wicked's a musical based on the Gregory Maguire novel titled Wicked: The Life and Times of the Wicked Witch of the West. It was published in 1995, and the book itself is a retelling of the classic 1900 novel The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, um, which is by L. Frank Baum, and a kind of a combination with the um, film The Wizard of Oz from 1939.
0: Nice. Yeah. We're off to see The Wizard. The
1: Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Yeah. So the music and lyrics are by uh, Stefan Schwartz, and there is also like a book on the, the musical um, by Winnie Holtzman. So, yeah, lots of books about these witches.
0: A book about a movie about a... No, a book about a musical about a movie about a book.
1: Yes. (laughs) Okay. Well, no, no. A book about a musical about a book about a movie and a book. Jesus. Yeah, it's confusing.
0: People like their (laughs) Wizards of Oz.
1: Yes, yes, we do. All right. I
0: personally prefer my Wizards of the Coast.
1: (laughs) You're a nerd. (laughs) Um, Okay, so I'm sure most of us are familiar with the story of the Wizard of Oz. Um, Dorothy drops in, makes some friends who are heartless, brainless, and scared, and they decide they need some help from the wizard. The wizard won't help without the... um, Wicked Witch of the West's broom, so they go to retrieve it, and Dorothy accidentally melts the witch with a bucket of water. Um, ding dong, the witch is dead. (laughs) So the wizard is a pain, and it turns out he's not actually a wizard, but a regular dude from Kansas who somehow ended up in Oz just like Dorothy.
0: We all know how those regular dudes from Kansas are. (laughs) Okay. I don't think we have Kansas
1: I don't know yet. anyone. I don't think I, I, I also, know anyone from Kansas. I also
0: don't know what I meant by that. So.
1: <laughs> all righty. Um, so, and to sum it all up, everyone had what they really needed all along, and Dorothy's able to return home with the help of her magical slippers that were taken from the witched, Wicked Witch's dead sister that Dorothy crushed with her house. I wonder why she the witch didn't like Dorothy.
0: Yeah, I'm just saying, don't kill people's siblings and expect them to be nice to you.
1: Yeah, Right. Um, so if you want some more details about that, pause this real quickly and either go watch the movie, read the book, or look it up on Wikipedia.
0: Do not pause our podcast. Do it afterwards.
1: I'm I'm saying pause and come back so that I'm not giving you spoilers.
0: Okay, for spoiler reasons.
1: If you've never seen, read, or heard about The Wizard of Oz, pause now. Read the plot synopsis on Wikipedia and just come right back. And we're back. (laughs) All right. So now that we're all caught up, we are going to talk about Wicked specifically. The show's website description reads, So much happened before Dorothy dropped in. Wicked looks at what happened in the Land of Oz, but from a different angle. There is a young woman born with emerald green skin, smart, fiery, misunderstood, and possessing an extraordinary talent. When she meets a bubbly blonde who is exceptionally popular, their initial rivalry turns into the unlikeliest of friendships. Until the world decides to call one good and the other one wicked. My poor floppy papers. (laughs) So as Jonathan is fully aware, Wicked is probably my all-time favorite musical. Yep. (laughs) Um, I've always loved The Wizard of Oz, and it's fascinating to see what the other side of the story could have been. Wicked the musical begins right after the people of Oz find out that the Wicked Witch of the West has been melted... And they rejoice. Melted, or rejoiceify, as the, the as the show
0: says. Oh boy,
1: <laughs> um, Glinda reminisces about her school days, where the witch was just Alphaba, and she was Galinda, and they attended Shiz University together. She reveals that Alphaba was the child of an affair, and while her mother was pregnant, she drank a green elixir, which resulted in Alphaba being born with green skin, which is not common in this place, and therefore feared. Um,
0: we always fear what we don't know, right?
1: <laughs> eh, seems so. So, Alphaba and Glinda were placed, well, Galinda were placed as roommates at Shiz, and they do not get along. It's quickly realized that Alphaba has real magical talent, which makes Galinda extremely do- jealous, and they continually butt heads, making Alphaba even less popular with the other students. Soon, a new student comes, the handsome Fiero, whose philosophy is to dance through life without a care. He catches Galinda's eye, and they decide to have an elaborate dance at the Oz Dust Ballroom. <laughs> Galinda gives Alphaba a witch's hat, like the pointy, black, scary witch hat kind. Mm-hmm. The one um, that she
0: wears in Wizard of Oz.
1: Yep. Um, as a joke to wear to the party, um, like to get people to make fun of her, but she regrets it when she sees Alphaba dancing alone while the other students laugh. Galinda joins her and leads to a bonding mo- moment where they see each other differently. Uh, Galinda then offers to give her a makeover and popularity lessons, which leads to one of my favorite sh- songs in the show, Popular, mm-hmm. which is where Jonathan quickly discovered I get my, like, fake singing voice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the new kid Fiero and Alphaba bond by saving a lion cub from a cage, but Alphaba thinks he'll never want her when someone like Galinda is around, and Galinda changes her name to Glinda in honor of their former teacher, who was a goat man. And Alpha gets invited to meet the wizard. Yay!
0: What? How does that honor Goatman? I never got that.
1: So, um... Dr. Dillamond, um... Would repeatedly misspeak Galinda as Glinda. Um, and so when he... I... Essentially, essentially what happens is that... Um... Animals are banned from, like, teaching in, like, public places. And, like, they're continuously getting their rights taken away from them. Because they can speak. And essentially... Whoever's doing this wants the animals to be dumb and like seen and not heard kind of thing. So he ends up getting like kicked out of being a teacher at the school and I think he's like dragged away essentially by like the like guards and stuff. And it's very dramatic and makes everyone very upset. So Glinda's like, well, in honor of him, I'm gonna change I'm gonna go with Glinda because that's what. And she's very much a character that just makes really big grand gestures without really any thought of follow-through. Mm-hmm. So Gulinda became Glinda because of
0: a teacher that she
1: was really mean to the whole time.
0: and probably felt bad about.
1: <laughs> yep, probably, considering we've now discovered that she grew a conscience. <laughs> uh, all okay,
0: right, continue.
1: <laughs> Anyway, um, so while in the Emerald City, Alphaba and Glinda meet the wizard, who turns out to be much less wonderful than they expected. He says he will grant Alphaba her wish, which is to not be green, only if she can prove herself. She tries to perform a levitation spell on the wizard's monkey, but it goes horribly, horribly wrong, and the monkey sprouts wings Hmm. in an agonizingly painful way. Alphaba realizes that the wizard has been suppressing all of the sentient animals, like their former teacher, Dr. Dillamond, and he's a fraud. Surprise, surprise. For anyone who's seen The Wizard of Oz, it's not a surprise. <laughs> um, in retaliation, the wizard and his press secretary, Madame Morrible, who is also a teacher at Shiz, um, spread the rumor that Alphaba is a wicked witch. And she realizes that she can only rely on herself. She magics a broom and flies away from the El- Emerald City, all while singing our favorite car ride jam, Defying Gravity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So Act 2 jumps a bit to Elphaba being a fairly established witchy rebel, earning her the title The Wicked Witch of the West. Glinda has become a positive public front of the wizard's regime, and she's been given the title Glinda the Good, and, she, um, and was positioned by Madame Morrible as the nation's defender against the witch. So there's a celebration, but it's hijacked by the crowd's panicked rumors about the witch, including a story that she can be melted by water. Our aforemented Fierro is incredulous and not convinced by Glinda's insistence that Bud doesn't want to be found. He's further angered when Madame Morrible announces his engagement to Glinda and runs off. Glinda attempts to keep a cheerful front for the press, but clearly realizes her dream life has come at a great price. Namely, her, her friendship. Alphaba <laughs> um, goes to visit her sister, but in a series of unfortunate events and some misplaced magic, Nessa tries to cast a spell to make the boy that she's in love with, Bach, fall in love with her. But it backfires and shrinks his heart. Alphaba quickly works to save his life, but he's disgusted by his new condition as a tin man, oh. A.K.A. Heartless.
0: Yeah, I think you forgot to wink, wink at the lion <laughs> wink, that they wink. saved earlier.
1: Oh, oh, yeah, well, wink wink, mm-hmm. lion from a cage, yep. yeah, 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 so Alphaba then sets out to free the wizard 's monkey servants, but is confronted by the wizard who tries to bribe her into rejoining him. It almost works until Alphaba sees her former teacher, Dr. Dillmond, who has now completely lost the power of speech. Fiero, as captain of the guards, is called to capture her, but he instead chooses to help her escape, and they run off together. I'm going to skip over all the steamy stuff here. Whoa. Alphaba <laughs> um, has a premonition that her sister is in danger, and she finds that Nessa has been crushed by a house. I wonder who that is. Hmm, I wonder. So she and Glinda arv- argue over Fiero, but the guards arrive to arrest Alphaba. Fiero holds Glinda h- hostage so that Alphaba can escape, but despite Glinda's pleas to not harm him, they take Fiero to the field where they can interrogate and torture him by crucifixion. Alphaba tries to cast a spell to protect him, but her power is limited and goes awry, and Alphaba vows to live up to her wicked reputation since she can't seem to do any good. No good deed goes unpunished, apparently, Mm -hmm. in this world. So back in the Emerald City, Glinda realizes that Madame Morrible, who is the press secretary from before, um, must have been responsible for Nessa's death since her magic allows her to control the weather, or in this case, create a hurricane, well, 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 tornado. It's a tornado, right? Tornado. Technically, yeah. yeah. Um, so she creates a tornado. Womp womp. The angry citizens gather together and set off to capture or kill Elphaba. I'm never fully clear on if their intention is to capture her or kill her, but I feel like they probably wouldn't have cared
0: either way. I feel like you described uh, <laughs> Glinda being the figurehead of the wizard's regime and that should lead people to think about <laughs> like which way they would go. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> so Elphaba, meanwhile, has captured Dorothy and wants Nessa's slippers back. The same slippers that she was wearing when the house crushed her. Mm. Whoops. And Glinda goes to warn Alphaba, but she refuses to let Dorothy go until she receives a letter saying that Fiero has died. So Glinda and Elphaba reconcile, and as the mob arrives, Elphaba has Glinda hide, and she's only able to watch helplessly from the shadows as Dorothy throws a bucket of water on Elphaba, who appears to disintegrate. Shaken, Glinda sees that all all that remains of her friend is her hat and the bottle of green elixir. So, Glinda confronts the wizard with the bottle of elixir, which is identical to his own, and he realizes that he was Elphaba's father. Ooh. Whoops, 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 whoops. Glinda then banishes the wizard from Oz and sends Madame Morrible to prison, thank goodness. <laughs> See what I did there? Ha, ha, ha. Ha, <laughs> um, So, possibly the best part is that Fiero, who is now a scarecrow, brainless, because oh. he was hung up on the thing, yep, like, a, like a, yep, like, like a, a scarecrow, crucible. yep. yep. Um, he goes to where Alphaba had melted, lifts up a trap door, and out steps Elphaba, very much alive. The entire thing had been a ruse to convince her enemies of her death and to ensure her future with Fiero, who was transformed into the Scarecrow by her spell, trying to protect him so that no bone would be broken. Uh-huh.
0: Can't have and bones yeah, if you're made out of yeah, hay.
1: Nope, no bones. So we then return to the starting point. Um, with Glinda and the people of Oz celebrating the death of the Wicked Witch. And Glinda promises to earn her title as Glinda the Good. So now imagine all of that happening with some amazing music. And that's wicked. Yeah. <laughs> um, so now that everyone knows the plot, we're going to talk a little bit about how the musical came to be. So composer and lyricist Stephen Schwartz, Stephen Schwartz, I'm not sure discovered um, Gregory Maguire's 1995 novel blah, while on vacation, which is funny because that's also how Lin-Manuel Miranda came up with the concept for Hamilton. Oh. Surprise. Yeah, he read the Hamilton book on vacation and went, this would make a great musical. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Go figure. Um, So Schwartz saw its um, potential for a dramatic adaptation. Um, but unfortunately, Maguire had already released the rights to Universal Pictures, um, which had been planning to develop a live action feature film. Fortunately for us, I guess Schwartz managed to convince Maguire to release the rights for a stage production and convinced Universal to sign on as well, like an agreement cause, and like yeah. shared rights kind of thing. Yeah. The book is actually fairly different from the stage version, and I have read it. A couple times it was just um a while ago probably right after i like obsessively learned all of the music to wicked so that Mm -hmm. i could see it for my 16th birthday i had a lot of feels (laughs) so it it is um it's designed to set the reader thinking about what it really is to be wicked and whether good intentions with bad results are the same thing as bad intentions with bad results Schwartz collaborated with the Emmy Award winning writer, Winnie Holtzman, to develop the outline of the plot over the course of a year, um, and they were trying to keep it true to the nature of the book, as well as keeping the show like moving along, because the book is kind of... It's actually kind of like very Tolkien-esque very in verbose. that it's very verbose, and it c- kind of draws out a lot of stuff that like may not necessarily be the most gripping,
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> Um I forget who it was, but someone recently was telling me that, you know, they love Lord of the Rings and everything, and they tried to pick it up.
1: Oh, yeah. Do you remember? Do yeah, you remember it was Lewis.
0: Was? Oh, it was Lewis. I yeah. think it was Lewis. He, he, he tried to pick up the book, and he's like, my God, I <laughs> can't read this. You
1: need to be very dedicated. Yeah. <laughs> so, there are also significant changes to characters between the book and the show, and some events of book characters have been folded into um, the storylines of K- other characters in the musical so like they kind of cut out some characters and like fold them all into one kind of yeah. thing yeah I mean you kind of have to otherwise you would have like a cast of like 80 yeah. <laughs> which is too much so as for cast members the original cast of Wicked held many names that some mis- listeners may recognize including Kristen Chenoweth the Tony award-winning actress who um, shorts actually had in mind while composing the music music for the character of Glinda. Um, she joined when um, they were doing, like, original, like, table reads and stuff, so really early on. Um, Stephanie J. Block played Alphabet in all of the workshops, and she was also the original Alphabet in the first national tour and then joined um, the Broadway cast later on. Okay. Yep. So, early reading for El- for Alphabet was um, Stephanie J. Block, not Idina Menzel. Mm-hmm. Fun fact. So, and then fellow performer Idina Menzel was cast in the role in late 2000, so... Before the Broadway run, like before the pre-Broadway like tryouts, yeah. So Menzel but still, is still the original, right? But still not like in the original workshops for the character. Which and like that happens a lot in that like people who do the workshops don't necessarily do the show. Yeah. Um, and she went off to actually be in The Boy from Oz. Like that's why she left Wicked was to be in The Boy from Oz. So which was another play. Um, yeah, it was another musical. Um, I don't remember exactly what it was about, but I find it funny that she left Wicked to be in something called The Boy From Oz.
0: Yeah, I think that was a bad <laughs> career move, because I've never heard of that one, but I've heard a lot about Wicked.
1: I I actually, I don't remember if it won any awards or not, but it, like, I've heard of it, but I'm also, like, a really big Broadway fan, so. Right. I probably would have. <laughs> um, okay. So, the role of Fiera was played by um, Leo Norbert Eh. (laughs) Butts. Don't be mean. Um, The Wizard was played by Joel Grey, and Madame Morrible was played by Carol Shelley, who I have mentioned before on this podcast. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. She was Aunt Clara in the 2005 film Bewitched with Nicole Kidman. Mm -hmm. She was Helen Moskovitz in the 1998 episode of Frasier entitled Merry Christmas, Mrs. Moskovitz. And th- she was the Goose Amelia Gabble in The Aristocats. Okay. She was also Lady Cluck, Maid marion's sidekick, and lady-in-waiting in the Disney um, animated Robin Hood.
0: Best role. I like that one the best out yep. of all those. She
1: was also one of the Fates in Hercules. That's
0: pretty good, too. Yep,
1: that's pretty good, too. Yep, so a lot of, like, my favorite Disney roles. Yeah. <laughs> Lady Cluck was always my favorite part of Robin Hood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, so other notable people, um, and these are just some of the names that I recognize in no particular order, that have played various characters are, obviously, Stephanie J. Block, Shoshana Bean, Jackie Burns, and Vanessa v- uh, Jessica Vosk have all played Alphaba at various times. Annalie, I think, Annalie Ashford, Megan Hilty, Cara Lindsay, and Patty Murren have all played Glinda. Emily Ashford is um, in the uh, the uh, My Little Pony: Magic of Friendship. I don't remember what Megan Hilty is in, but I looked at her picture and went, "Oh, I recognize her." Cara Lindsay was in Newsies; she was the the daughter of.
0: Oh, okay, I remember. Yeah, her. yeah, yeah. Her. the daughter and then, of uh, Pulitzer. Yes. Yep.
1: And then Patty Murin is currently Anna in Frozen on Broadway. Oh okay. yeah. <clears throat> so, hey Uh So Tay Diggs, Derek Klena, Kyle Dean Massey, and. Aaron Tveit have all played Fierro. My favorite. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then um, Carol Kane has played Morrible. Do you recognize? No. Carol Kane? Okay. So, Carol Kane was Valerie, the witchy wife of Billy Crystal's Miracle oh, Max Jesus. in The Princess yes. Bride. Yep. So, And she had my absolute favorite line in that whole movie, which is, I'm not a witch, I'm your wife.
0: Kylie says it all the It's time. my favorite
1: line, and we're not married yet, but I still say it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, yeah. So a lot of very interesting people have been all up in this show. Yes. <laughs> so as many shows do, things changed from the pre-Broadway run in San Francisco and the Broadway premiere. Concern existed that Menzel's Alphaba got, quote, got a little overshadowed by Chenoweth as Glinda, which, I mean, if you've ever seen Kristen Chenoweth in anything, she's like super over the top. Yeah. Like very over the top. She was in an episode of Say Yes to the Dress because she was a bridesmaid for someone. Or she might have been, like, the aunt. Or she was somehow related or in this party for one of the brides. And, like, she tries on a wedding dress. <laughs> like, she is very, like, personality. She has a huge personality. So, I, it... Yeah, she overshadowed a little bit. I can, I can see that happening easily. The San Francisco Chronicle critic Robert herwitt wrote, Menzel's brightly intense alphabet, the Wicked Witch, needs a chance to hold her own alongside Chenoweth's gloriously, insidiously bubbly Glinda. Which, yeah, insidiously bubbly describes <laughs> Glinda really, really well. Definitely. <laughs> um, As a result, the creative team set about making Alphaba more prominent, and Schwartz has even said that the criticism the tryout garnered was extremely helpful. Specifically, and he specifically planned for three months from when the tryout closed in San Francisco to the beginning of rehearsals in New York, um, so that changes could be made to it because he like assumed there would be. Um, there was a song called Making Good originally sung by Alphaba in the show that was replaced by The Wizard and I, but you can still find a video of um Stephanie J. Block performing it on YouTube. And it's really nice. Um and like if you watch like if you listen to both of them, you can definitely see where a lot of Making Good got folded into The Wizard and I. Mm-hmm. Um, but The Wizard and I just kind of moves the plot a little bit faster than Making Good does. Yeah, Um and like establishes Alphaba like, her personality a little bit more stably. So there's a lot going on musically in the show, and I do not have time to go into it all, so I'm just going (laughs) to highlight a couple (laughs) things. no you don't. (laughs) (laughs) I never do. So while many musical scores employ new motifs and melodies for each song with little overlap, Schwartz integrated a handful of, um... Light motifs throughout the production. Some of these in, um, indicate irony. For example, when Glinda presents Alphaba with a ghastly hat and dancing through life, the score reprises a the theme from What Is This Feeling? from a few scenes earlier in which Alphaba and Glinda sang about how much they hated each other. Yep. <laughs> so it repeats that when she gifts her the hat. Yep. So, I- ironic.
0: Love um, the thing.
1: Yep. So that kind of hearkening back to something earlier in the show is pretty common in this. Um, additionally, there are two major themes running throughout the show. One is like Alphaba's theme or the wicked witch theme, which forms the core of both As Long as Your Mind, mine, not mind, <laughs> which is the song between Alphaba and Fiero in the steamy part, and the song No One Mourns the Wicked, which is the citizens celebrating Alphaba's death, both at the beginning and at the end. Additionally, it features heavily in the overture, um, which where it's carried by like the bass section and is very kind of haunting, and um Schwartz called it a giant shadow terrorizing you. <laughs> hmm. So the other major theme is the unlimited theme, which incorporates the first seven notes of the song over the rainbow. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't isn't that nice? Catch that. It do, it doesn't have like the same um exact tune, but it very much has it's the same notes. Um, It just has, like, a different kind of, like, feel to it. Yeah. So it appears as an interlude in several of the musical numbers. um, And Schwartz included it as an inside joke because according to copyright law, when you get to the eighth note, then people can come and say, oh, you stole our tune. And, of course, obviously, it's also disguised in that it's completely different rhythmically. And it's also harmonized completely different. It's over a different chord. And such, but still it's the first seven notes of Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Nice. Yeah, so fun little play. Um, It also plays with the keys a lot, so it's sometimes set in minor, sometimes major. And it's frequently for crucial moments, um, like in Defying Gravity and the song The Wicked Witch of the East. Um, And speaking of The Wicked Witch of the East, if you've never seen the show, you haven't heard it. Um, As it's not included on the soundtrack, soundtrack? Jeez. Your mainer b-
0: coming out. Yeah,
1: my is coming out hard. Um, so the, the uh, it's not included on the soundtrack because the producers felt that the song included too much dialogue and would give some of the plot away to people who have not seen the show.
0: That's accurate. Yep.
1: It, yep. Um, it's basically all of the enchanting of the ruby slippers. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so Wicked has been referenced in many films and shows, including Ugly Betty, The Simpsons, South Park, Family Guy, New Girl, and Glee. Um, where Idina Menzel guest stars in several episodes, so you kind of have to, I think. The original Broadway production of Wicked was nominated for 10 Tony Awards in 2004. Nice. They include Best Musical, Book, Orchestration, Original Score, Choreography, Costume Design, Lighting Design, Scenic, and Scenic Design, um, and received two nominations for Best Ast- Actress um, for um, Menzel and Channel Uh, Menzel won the Best Actress award, and the show also won the Tony Awards for Best Scenic Design and Best Costume Design. um, Although notably losing Best Book, Best Original Score, and ultimately Best Musical, all to Avenue Q, which is like a pretty that's a pretty good rival. Like I can see that, yeah. (laughs) So the original Broadway cast recording also received the 2005 Grammy Award for Best Musical Show Album. The international shows have also won numerous awards. um, Five Laurence Olivier award nominations, and the Audience Award for Most Popular Show at the 2010 Academy Award. Or Academy Ceremony. Award Ceremony. Jeez. Sorry. <laughs> Wicked was named the Best Musical of the Decade by Entertainment Weekly magazine and was hailed a Cultural Phenomenon by Variety magazine. So, good job, guys. Um, while not technically an award, the character of Elphaba was named... 79th on Entertainment Weekly's list of 100 Greatest Characters of the Past 20 Years. Oh, cool. So, yeah, that's pretty cool. And this year marks Wicked's 16th anniversary, and on October 28th, 2019, with its 6,681st performance, it surpassed Les Miserables to become Broadway's fifth longest-running show. Nice. Yeah, I
0: think I actually mentioned that in our very first episode. Uh,
1: I think you did. Yes, you did because we did the game show. Yep, yep. And you made it all Broadway show themed. I did. Good job. (laughs) Um, So, in March of 2016, Wicked surpassed one billion in total Broadway revenue, joining both The Phantom of the Opera and The Lion King as the only Broadway shows to do so. Good job, guys.
0: The Lion King is still so far ahead of that. Yeah, it's it's terrifying.
1: So, and then in July of 2017, Wicked surpassed The Phantom of the Opera as Broadway's second highest grossing musical, trailing only behind The Lion King.
0: Yeah. We're yep. still way ahead. So,
1: second place is pretty darn good. Yes. Yes. Oh, and then there was the 15th anniversary show last year that was televised that was hosted by Idina Menzel and Christian Chenoweth and had a pentatonics performed, yep. Ariana Grande performed. I'm drawing a blank on his name. Um, there were a couple of other performers, too. Um, and they performed songs, like, new, like, slightly altered versions of songs and stuff. And it was really, it was awesome. It was great. And then Kristen Chenoweth and Idina Menzel pl- sang for good and brought out, I think, all of the past Glinda and Alphabas that they could get together. And I cried really, really hard. A lot.
0: She cried a I lot. I cried
1: a lot. It was beautiful. <laughs> But yeah, so that's my dive into Wicked. Um, There's so much more I could talk about, but I only have so much time. Oh, also, there's a movie set to be released um, December 22nd of 2021 of Wicked, like a movie of Wicked, like the musical. So Universal
0: finally got around to it? Yes. Yeah.
1: Um, There hasn't been a cast announced, but it has a release date. But then again, its former release date was taken by Cats, the movie, so...
0: Oops.
1: Fingers crossed that... Wicked gets his butt in gear. <laughs>
0: Hot take, uh, controversial take, uh, Wicked should have been produced before Cats.
1: I agree. I love Wicked with every fiber of my being.
0: <laughs> and I'm definitely on the side of the people who found the trailer for Cats to be uh, <laughs> yeah. horrifying, to say the least.
1: It's interesting. But yeah, so Wicked.
0: Woo! Yes.
1: Love it. All right, cool. so um, fun facts. No. No. Call, Call to, to action. action. Yes. <laughs>
0: calling you to act
1: act please do it act now <laughs> for your offer no we don't have any offers <laughs> not yet
0: <laughs> maybe soon
1: um if you donate on patreon we have offers for that you'll get a picture of our dog
0: yeah that's true if you do the and there's an assortment out. of
1: other things depending on what level you donate at but well we only pictures have... of our dog
0: i think we only have two <laughs> levels right now there's friends of bilbo oh yeah and then there's either halfwits or historians. Oh and yeah, we basically are kind of doing like a little monthly club thing. We haven't posted yet because we haven't gotten any patrons. But the second we you get, don't a patron, have to say that. Well, no, I'm trying to guilt them into giving us money. Okay,
1: yeah, feel guilty, guys, feel guilty. <laughs> we <laughs> no. want to share our interests with you. <laughs> yeah,
0: but if if you end up donating, um, whatever tier, I don't remember. I don't remember. I think remember. it was five. I don't know. We <laughs> might. We might not deserve that yet, but in the future. <laughs> Saying this all on hey, an episode my, where we've been gone for two weeks.
1: My sick butt managed to record at this point. I'm still dying slowly inside. So.
0: <laughs> Many a cough has been edited out of this episode. Yeah, a lot of them. But yeah, if you if you do end up donating on that level, then we, me and Kylie, will send out. Um, you know, kind of, like, interests of the month. Like, oh, yeah. this is an anime I'm watching, and this is what I think about it. Or, like, this is a cool board game or book that we've read. Yeah.
1: Or, so, yeah. like, fun things to highlight that maybe people would also be interested in. Woo.
0: All right. So like, Wicked. Act- <laughs> <laughs> Jesus.
1: I have an obsession. It's fine. Mm-hmm.
0: So, actual <laughs> call to action now. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Halfwit History. You can find us on Patreon at Halfwit Pod. You can send us an email at halfwhippod at gmail.com. And if you have any suggestions for topics you'd like us to cover, just send them to us. We'll find out what date they happened and put them on a backlog. That would be cool to start getting suggestions.
1: Yeah, then we could do, like, I don't know, shout-outs for whoever suggested it or something like that would be fun, I think.
0: And you'd be doing half the work for us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: Having an engaged audience sounds like fun.
0: Yes. (laughs) What else haven't I said? Oh, and you can visit our website at www.halfwit-history.com.
1: Yes. Yeah. Check us out.
0: Okay, so now we're on fun facts. Okay. We'll let you go first. I've gone first recently.
1: Oh, okay. My fun fact is for November 3rd, 1883. I didn't grab that one. Ha ha. So, um, set the scene. The American Old West. The self-described Black Bart the Poet gets away with his last stagecoach robbery, but leaves an incriminating clue that eventually leads to his capture. He left behind his eyeglasses, some food, and a handkerchief with the laundry mark FX07, which was traced back to the laundromat at which it was laundered. And then it was traced back to him. His real name was Charles Earl Bowles, and the nickname came from the poetic messages he left behind after two of his robberies. The only two he committed. He got two was hey. not a very good stagecoach <laughs> robber.
0: <laughs> That's more than a lot of people can say.
1: That's true.
0: All right, so mine, I was tempted to stick with spooky stuff, but <laughs> I was floored by this little fact that I read, and this is probably one of the few times you'll ever hear us talk about sports ever. Oh, no. In 1994, American tennis star Venus Williams makes her professional v- debut as a 14-year-old winning... Against the former NCAA champion and number 58 in the world, Sean Stafford, in the Bank of West Classic in Oakland, California. A number 58 in the world champion got handily, if I'm looking at the numbers (laughs) right, handily beat by a 14-year-old. It's a little embarrassing for
1: that 50... eight-place person.
0: Oh, my God. And and I was looking at him like, wait, Sean, like, was was Sean also a woman? Like, was this, like, a women's division? It was not.
1: Nope. Yep. Yep. So, props
0: <laughs> to Venus Williams. I don't think I ever realized just how good she was so early She's on.
1: She's terrifyingly amazing.
0: Yeah. So, anyways, I'm your half-wit.
1: And I'm your historian.
0: And we look forward to having you listen next week. Bye.
1: And let me see what days Since you've gone another day
0: Baby, please don't call my name Since you left another man I feel you on record.